Recently on Twitter, our friends at the Religious Studies Project were chatting about examples of religion scholars in television and film. Submissions included Indiana Jones' Archaeological Exploits, Robert Langdon's Symbology and Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, and lest we forget, Cornell West was in The Matrix Reloaded. I'm interested in seeing where the Religious Studies Project goes with the conversation. Lately, I've been musing about that prompt in another way, because these fantastic models imitate the mold of the public intellectual in which a lot of scholars are trying to fit. In some of our conversations at Sowing the Seed, we've discussed the importance for academics to seek first substance over flash with the reminder that we all have publics. The question is, what are we trying and unintentionally doing with them? In this episode, we talk with Dr. Naisha Jr., Associate Professor of Religion at Temple University. A biblical scholar by training, she has charted a compelling path of public engagement that with good reason landed her on the Chronicle of Higher Education's 15 indispensable academic Twitter accounts. Whether she's amplifying less heard voices, sharing rich bibliographies on hot topics, or presenting her own insight on biblical interpretation and cultural politics, Naisha Jr.'s out here not just talking, but saying something. Um, I think that for me, putting the person into the work um, is about acknowledging where you're coming from, why you're asking these questions, who you're in conversation with, and what's at stake in the work that you do. And that's coming up right now. From SowingTheSeed.org, this is Broadcast Seeding, the podcast of future food for thought on religion, culture, and teaching. I'm Richard Newton. We're glad you've joined us. Our guest is Dr. Naisha Jr. She's a professor of religion at Temple University. She works in the area of Hebrew Bible. She's also the author of An Introduction to Womanist Interpretation from Westminster John Knox Press. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Naisha Jr., you are prolific on social media. I believe I'm on the record uh, as describing you as the Beyonce of biblical studies. You are out there. Everyone knows what's up. Um, You have been on our list to have as a guest for a long time, so I'm glad that it's happening. Um, I offer you the Wakandan salute. This is what's up. Everybody knows. Black Panther, you've seen it already. If you haven't, you're behind. Make it happen. No one who listens here. That's a requirement. So let's talk about Black Panther because it's a phenomena. Like what, what did Black Panther mean? Where did you see Black Panther? Let's start with that. Where was your, what's your I story? Saw, I saw Black Panther in Philadelphia with a predominantly black audience. You sought that out? I did indeed. Yes. Um, I need to see it again. I, I definitely plan to see it several more times because I missed a lot of dialogue, given that the audience um, enthusiasm and uh, conversation with the screen meant that I, I missed some things, but it was a wonderful experience. And it's one of those experiences where I really feel like you had to be there, um, that, that yes. there were people. So I, I saw it at a predominantly white theater Um, in Pennsylvania, and there were only 20, 30 people in the audience. I had four rows in front of me that were open, three rows behind me. I couldn't believe it. Um, 
and at the same time, I'm on Twitter. I'm seeing people singing Lift Every Voice. <laughs> <laughs> I am uh, looking at invitations to pre-parties and after-parties. Yes. I am out there in my my gear from Burkina Faso, like every, and that's a that's a jump for me. So this was an experience that people. I think people. I have, I know I made the decision to say, okay, I have to be there. Like this is going to happen. This is on my calendar. Yes, um, I bought tickets early. Made sure we were there Thursday night with the folks. Um, it it was it was a phenomenon. People were dressed up. People had their kids. Elders were there. Uh, it was really great. Why do you think there was the lead up to it? Like, I mean, it could have gone horribly wrong, right? Like, it could have been we get there and we watch it and it's it's this farce that just completely crumbles before our eyes. But it delivered and then some. Like, what what was it that the excitement almost wasn't even enough like like we could have been even more into it had we known how good it was going to be that's true i was so excited that i was a little afraid that i might be disappointed but i i could have been even more excited than i was um well i know nothing of black panther and comics and all of that but i knew that that demographic was going to be excited and then it started to spill over because of the cast, um, because of all the social media that they did prior to that, because of the trailers, the images. It all just looked so rich and inviting that um, there was so much buildup that, that I knew it was going to be successful. And you, being a biblical studies professor, I mean, you're aware that this is, if I cut out our sort of the first part of our conversation about Black Panther and just had you describing the experience, some people would be like, well, that's church. That's what the Bible is supposed to do for you. This is where narratives are. Um, and we're both rolling our eyes because we're like, mm, okay. Uh, yeah, so is there a disconnect with biblical studies at all? Like, we talked about, oh, we should have a Black Panther panel at SBL or something. And I don't know if people would appreciate I don't, I don't even know, like, what would happen. Like, some people would be into it. Some people would, like, be like, oh, yeah, this looks cool because cool people are there. But I don't know if they even know. You know what I'm saying? Yes, unfortunately, I do. <laughs> um, a Black Panther in the Bible sounds fantastic. But then I don't, I don't know if biblical studies is even worthy. Um, for some people, the experience of Black Panther might be what they experience at church. None of the people I know. I mean, <laughs> church usually doesn't rise to that sort of doesn't get you there. level, right? I think for me, reflecting on it as a biblical scholar, I see that the narratives, stories, interpretation that Biblical scholars are not doing a very good job of engaging people where they are. And we tend to focus on the conversations we have with each other, and we have the same old arguments with each other, and don't reach out to see how these texts live in the wild. I think most of us aren't trained to do that. I know certainly I'm not, um, but I'm 
out here muddling through trying to um, retool and teach myself how to do this kind of thing. But I think the main thing is learning to ask those questions and being interested in those types of things. And if, if you're not on Twitter, you need to know that uh, an introduction to womanist biblical interpretation, um, hashtag intro WBI, is a book that brings back the people um, in conversations about the Bible and biblical interpretation and scriptures and texts. That it is not, oh, what does the text say about black women reading the Bible or women reading the Bible? This is a book about what makes the Bible the Bible, particularly in the eyes of um, feminist interpretation, womanist interpretation, um, the history of Bible reading in the context of the West and how all of that collides. I mean, this is a text that, uh, the book is a, it is a text itself that engages people again. And I think biblical studies is, um, it needs a little more of that. And well, I, I will say there have been some critics um, who were disappointed that it was not what is the womanist reading on this text? What is the womanist approach to the book of Esther? Right. Um, so I, there were some people who wanted that. Kind of exegetical commentary. Right. Okay. Yes. Um, and who felt that the title even was misleading because they assumed that it was going to be a womanist reading of, of various texts. So if that's what you're looking for, that's not in there. Buyer beware, that's not what you're getting. That's not what you're getting. Um, I feel I was clear about the book with the descriptions and the title is descriptive of the contents, but I think it was more just that some people had an expectation and this book was not the book that they were thinking it was going to be. Yeah, and at a level that that's what we come to expect from a lot of work. I think when we think about an introduction and biblical studies, the introduction by default is you're getting an exegetical commentary on how you should read what the Bible says or the sort of earliest history about the people in the Bible or the people being discussed, but not so much a discussion of why are we even talking about the Bible in the first place, let alone in this particular way? Um, what are the stakes? What are the arguments? And that's what this I think that's a gap this book really fills. I mean, especially for those for those of you out there who have ever asked, what's a womanist? Um, which at some point maybe we, we can talk about, right? But, you know, what is a womanist? Why is womanism different than feminism? Why is womanist biblical interpretation not folded into feminist biblical interpretation? Um, this book, I'm not going to say it gives you answers, but helps you refine those questions, which is way more worthwhile to me, but I might be... That just might be my own bag. Um, well, that was the, the goal. The goal for me was I, I had in mind a, a student in an MDiv program who heard something about womanist something and didn't know where to start um, and whose faculty member perhaps also didn't quite know where to steer this student. Um, so I tried to offer some introductions, some historical background, to lead you up to the point of being able to understand womanist approaches within biblical studies. And there's a number of volumes, even the last two years, that have come out about um, womanism and biblical studies and Bible reading. 
um, that you can check out. And I'll put links on the site to some of the ones that have been sort of on the horizon or already out there. What's the conversation or debate that's happening when it comes to these people called womanist, this label, and um, Bible reading or biblical interpretation? This is a difficult question to answer briefly. So as you mentioned, there are other works that are out. Um, biblical scholars such as Will Gaffney, Gay Byron, Vanessa Lovelace, uh, Stephanie Crowder um, have all had work come out since uh, my book has come out. There has not been the kind of conversation and debate that I had hoped that there would be. So it the questions that I raised in my book remain and I do not feel that we are currently having a debate or conversation about the issues that I've raised. So scholars have continued to do womanist work in biblical studies um, but in my opinion have not started to answer some of the questions that I raised in my book. So what are the agreements? Like if if, is there a sort of a broad general base, like we could say, womanist biblical interpretation has to do with black women, some way, shape, or form? Is that is that a fair place to start, or at least to 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 get things going? I don't know if that if an origin is the thing to look for here, but this is difficult, as I describe in my book. So. What I argue is that there was, at the time of the writing, and I would say still, there's no consensus about what a womanist approach looks like within biblical studies. Um, there are others who would argue that that is one of the strengths of womanism and that they are not looking for that kind of methodological consensus. My point has been that within biblical studies, specifically that we need to have some understanding of what we are doing otherwise are these terms really useful mm -hmm. so uh, womanist biblical studies in my view does not have a consensus position and it more often refers to the author of the work rather than to the work itself so it usually means that there is a black woman doing the work and that work might be done in any number of different ways. So that particular black woman scholar may be using a post-colonial approach, a narrative approach. There may be uh, lots of different approaches that are being labeled womanist. And my question is, again, so what is womanist about what's happening? As I discuss in the book, feminist approaches certainly also have great diversity, but because of the amount of scholarship that we have over time, we have reached pretty much some consensus positions about what a feminist approach looks like. Specifically that a feminist approach does not have to be done by a woman. In contrast, the way that womanist approaches have been used in biblical studies, being a black woman appears to be a requirement. And I raise questions about that in the book. And there's stakes with that, right? There's something to be gained from engaging the Bible from a certain vantage point. There 
reasons why lines of difference are drawn, um, and those have ramifications that can be seen within who studies the Bible under certain people, who goes about in this mode of reading the Bible and where it can go and take place and grow and form. Um, and so you see that in the variety of the books that are coming out around this label that really is a label on the scholar more than um, descriptive of anything else perhaps. Like is, and to me that gets back to a question of training. So what does training look like in putting the personhood back into the study of the Bible? Like you talked about sort of you're doing something that you necessarily weren't trained to do. Um, yeah, what's, what's training in biblical studies look like? Maybe, uh, what did your training look like and what do you think maybe training would look like to, to be about that task of thinking about people in the Bible? It's difficult for me to reflect on my training because of the PTSD. That's so, real. So, um, yeah, lots of trauma involved. I made it through but trust me, there are scars and uh, continuing to learn. And that's, that's what I try to communicate with students that, yes, I'm a scholar, yes, I have a PhD, but this is a continual learning process for me. So if someone wants to engage biblical studies in the way that you've kind of modeled in um, intro WBI, in what you're doing in reimagining Hagar. And that may be in the academy or not, right? Like I think people do engage the Bible in interesting ways in interesting spaces. Uh, but if they want to, to go about in the model that you sort of set out, what kind of, what can they do in order to train themselves to do it and do it better? Like I think about my undergraduate students and potential graduate students, like if you're gonna be about that life, what sorts of classes should you be taking or could you be taking? What sort of things could you be reading that might be um, helping you do that reception history, whatever, but, uh, better, or do it well? That's a good question. I, I mean, a lot of this, I am making this up. I uh, don't feel like mm -hmm. I am uh, a role model or developing models, but these are the questions that I have and how I'm trying to answer them. I think we're always making it up, right? I mean, we, your major doesn't matter that much, and also your teacher's making it up as they go. Yes. Even if they're pulling out a folder and say, I've done this forever, they're also making up some stuff as they go. Right. Yeah. I would say, for me, curiosity is extremely important. Um, and I know that you've got exams and papers and things and the next thing and the next deadline, but being curious, even if you don't have time to investigate that particular question, write it down. Keep a journal, keep uh, a notebook, something. Just places where you have some questions that you can come back to. Read, read a lot, read widely, uh, read beyond the syllabus. I know it's tough, I know you have too much to do, but um, I always make sure that I have a fiction book that I'm reading in the evenings along with whatever other reading that I have to do. Uh, for me, social media has been a great place to learn and to be curious. I've, I've learned a lot about different communities, about how other people navigate different spaces. But I think being curious is the main thing. If you don't have that, it's, 
difficult to get to other places. So, so as, as you're saying that, I'm kind of thinking like that. Those could be the building blocks of a really cool syllabus. I mean, that in which the readings, okay, so let's say people aren't going to do the beyond the required or recommended readings. Then the readings become what you would put on that recommended list. Like you're going to read that broadly. You're going to have a fiction book on that syllabus. Um, and we all have to make choices, right, with every syllabus. But what if you had a biblical studies or a religious studies syllabus that had a fiction book on it that was more than just some specific area or subject matter, but really challenged you to think broadly, comparatively, if you will. Um, and there was like a journal exercise where you you had to, maybe part of the discipline isn't just learning answers, but keeping track of questions as you go, that you are following, you know, chasing down rabbit trails, you know, following those threads and seeing where they lead you. And the class is a part of the, the discipline and pro- practice of furthering curiosity. That sounds wonderful. <laughs> I am also aware that I'm in a very, very privileged position mm-hmm. to be able to follow those threads yeah. and to have the time and space to uh, engage my curiosity. So I think the trouble with having a class is you really need students who have the freedom and the time to do those kinds of things and who are not so stressed about, is this on the test? How will this be graded? Mm -hmm. I understand where students are who are in that space, but it's difficult to assign things like journaling or um, creative activities if you're in a space where the anxiety is, I have limited amount of time, I have a lot of other responsibilities, I just need to do the minimum mm-hmm. so that I can get on with the next thing. Yeah. And that, I think, just reflecting on, my, on the various contexts where I've taught, the, I don't even want to say the needs, but the realities of my students has, uh, challenged me to rethink what the minimum is or what is the core of this class like year after year I'm kind of like this thing has to go like if I look back at the first time that I taught um, my own courses at Cal Poly Pomona in Los Angeles um, with students traveling from all parts of that city um, an hour to get to class and then they're headed out to work I mean they're they're leaving five minutes to class after or before class to uh, before class ends to get to one of their many jobs there's some stuff that I assigned them that, with all due respect, I should never have assigned them. Like, it just had no place. Like, it, it wasn't that important. It didn't matter that much. Um, what sort of practices, assignments, what kind of stuff have you jettisoned as you've done this for a minute? So many things. Like you, I think you start out um, ambitious and especially coming out of a doctoral program, Mm -hmm. you have this huge bibliography and you want to share and you you think that you can cover more than you can. So with age comes wisdom and I now assign much, much less than I used to, but what I do assign is extraordinarily important. So I try to stress to students, I'm not assigning read the entire book of Genesis. But 
on Monday, we are discussing Genesis 4. One chapter, but you better be ready. So um, I think I assign less, but then require more of the reading that I do assign. And I try to, um, to understand where students are. So my attendance policy has gotten more flexible. Also, context matters. So I've taught in different places and taught different types of students. The needs of master's students um, may be different than that of undergraduates. There are a lot of different factors. But um, I try to keep the price of books low. I try to use a lot of online materials. So I assign, for example, materials from Bible Odyssey that are really short that students can understand easily. And I also give discussion questions. So sometimes students are just not familiar with the way that I'm asking them to read. So I'm asking you to read this as literature. And there are some students who haven't had an English class that requires this kind of work from them. So I'm more careful about explaining what I'm looking for, what I'm asking uh, of students. As I said before, I'm, I'm still learning, I'm still making, the, making this up as I go. Every class is different. Um, but yes, I assign less than I used to. Yeah, yeah I co-teach a class um, currently with someone who's a, a, research, a research psychologist and a counseling psychologist. And um, in this theory and method class that we've been co-teaching, um, we sort of stopped in the middle of the course and really broke down the process of writing. Like, what is a paragraph? You know, a paragraph has an assertion and one assertion. It has evidence that backs it up. It has commentary that ties the evidence to the assertion. It's for the reader. And I was like, you're going to know what each sentence is and it is what it is doing in the paragraphs that you're writing. Like, there's a reason why you put this word on the page. As we went through this exercise, I heard my students, juniors, seniors, and first years and sophomores saying, oh my gosh, this is so much work. Like, I'm doing so much thinking right now and there and I was like but you write all the time and they're like yeah but we don't have to think about it we just put it down on the page and I was like whoa you know like this is like how much are we writing that we don't even really give attention to but the my co-teacher had turned to me and said in the midst of this she was like no one ever in the entire time that I did all those degrees taught me how to write a paragraph a paragraph that's worth reading they're just like do it and I have to say the same for myself too. Like it wasn't since elementary school and then even maybe that they taught me that stuff. But I love this approach that you have of assuming nothing about what the student knows. Like there needs to be explanation of what the expectations are for an assignment, what it is you're doing. Maybe you've never taken an English class and that may seem like oversimplification or dumbing things down, but it sounds like it also makes for a more equitable space for learning and curiosity to take space because there's not as much fear of oh my gosh like I didn't come with the right tools into the to the spot anyway well the thing is as as you were saying we weren't really taught how to write as quiet as it's kept we weren't taught how to teach either I know that's right so I, I don't know what your experience was but I think I had a an, a day-long teaching workshop that was mostly about don't sexually harass your students. So it's not as if um, I was given tools. It was more 
you have been in classrooms lo these many years now here's your classroom figure it out yeah we got a book we got the you know like title nine um discussion which was very important um, probably more important than the discussion actually was itself uh and then we got a book that was like here's how you teach and the intro is basically like you're not going to know how to do this well until maybe the third or fourth time you've taught this class so just to hang in there and it's like okay i'll see my students on monday um after i figure out where the class is assigned i mean yeah you really don't get that kind of training by and large but no yeah and we do it we don't get training on what it means to be a black professor who walks into the classroom. We don't talk about embodied teaching. We don't talk about differences in how students understand their role and understand your role. Um, there's a big conversation about teaching evaluations that's been going on and all of the data says that you can use teaching evaluations and you should get feedback from students, but questions how those evaluations are used. So when it's strictly numerical, um, understand that there is bias against women, against people of color, against anyone who is different, um, someone who is perceived to have an accent, someone who is international, all of these things play a role, and yet these evaluations are still used for merit, for tenure, and promotion. So not only was I not taught how to write, how to teach, I wasn't taught about how to deal with race and gender and other issues of difference as a teacher in the classroom, despite the fact that all of those factors play a role and will affect um, my career. And on, you know, there's, you get this stuff where you can, as far as insights on how to make it. I mean, I, I wish I could tell people out there that, oh yeah, if you sign up for this conference, then you're going to be good to go and they're going to set you straight. And it's just, it doesn't work that way. They'll take your money and they'll teach you a little bit of what you need to know and you'll find out there's a lot more. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot. Uh, it's like therapy, right? You, you get a bit of it and then you're like, oh, our time is up. It's like, oh, dang, I'm a real mess. Like, I, I need more of this. Um, and you hope that there, there's money in the, on the balance to, to deal with it. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean give it up, right? So if you're into it, if this is the path that you want to go, um, find the resources where you can. What I really appreciate about your work um, on social media is that you've really curated, I mean, I don't even want to use it in the past tense, you, you curate lists um, when you're up to it, when you feel like it, when you see stuff that really give people a way to go, you know, and finding answers for things or at least engaging a topic more. Um, often, I mean, I think you're really good about the hashtags, right? About not just like hashtag for hashtag's sake, but really hashtags as in archiving of resources and um, materials and I, I wonder sort of what's your ethos behind that sort of how did you get into that how might followers use that I just sort of stumbled into social media a friend of mine Africa hands said you know I really think you might like Twitter because I was complaining about Facebook that mm -hmm. I didn't enjoy it 
and I got on and found a community. It, it definitely takes time. I think when people first get on, it just seems like a big mess and mm-hmm. you don't know where to find people. So I recommend that people find someone they like and then follow the people they follow and follow the people they retweet. So for me, social media is a way of communicating with outsiders, um, the work that academics do. I've written about this a little bit in a JBL piece. You were part Mm -hmm. of the JBL forum on Black Lives Matter. And so in that piece, I talk about the fact that I'm doing this intentionally. So I try to offer people resources, offer people a way into the conversation. Um, I have a hashtag, it's B-L-K-A-A-R-S-B-L, where I highlight the work of black scholars in religion in both AAR and SBL. And it's just a way to let people know what's out there. Some of the books, yes, are too expensive, but you can find them at your library. But it's also a way to let people know there are scholars out here doing this work. I think for the regular person, um, they are probably only aware of books that are on the New York Times bestseller list. They're probably not getting um, Westminster John Knox or Fortress Press or Abingdon Press uh, mailers in the mail. So it's a way for people to know that there are scholars out here, there are people doing this work, It may not have been something that they know about, but there are people who are out here um, doing this kind of scholarship, and it it takes longer than the time it takes to write a blog post. But here are some resources, and I found uh, my followers tend to be very grateful to know about scholars doing this work, to know about the work itself, and frequently will say, oh, I just bought this, or I just put this on my wish list, um, or I'm assigning this to my class. So for me, it's a way of just sharing what we're already doing with people who just don't know that we're doing the work. I've heard you talk about Twitter, um, particularly the, the sort of venues within Twitter that you engage in as sort of a teacher's lounge. Is that right? Teacher's yes, lounge? yes. Yeah. Um, and I really think... Twitter and in other spaces too can be that, but I think it is important that especially those um, on the come up in higher ed think about, okay, what community are you going to be a part of? What communities do you think will be useful for you to sort of think through, tease through, get skills, resources, tools, ideas, um, you know, signs of warning uh, from to make, make sure you make it through and do what you can do well. Um, and I think uh, you've really modeled that in a cool way. We'll put a link to the article in uh, the Journal of Biblical Literature, as well as um, other places where they can find the stuff that you're doing. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. That was our guest, Dr. Nisha Jr. Nisha spelled N-Y-A-S-H-A. And you can check out her website at nishajr.com. And you can follow her on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Nisha Jr. I'm your host, Richard Newton. On behalf of both of us and my production assistant, Maya Ponsuwan, thanks for being here. Until next time. Broadcast Seeding is an outgrowth of the blog SowingTheSeed.org. If you dig what you've heard, spread the word. We're on both Twitter and Instagram at SeedPods. 
Our theme music comes from Second Serve, a Creative Commons track by Ergo Fizmiz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>